Hey, before we dive into today's episode, I had to let you know that I just launched my brand new Front Row CEO virtual staffing agency, and we provide efficient, reliable, and affordable virtual assistance for your business. After personally vetting more than 100 VAs and matching them with clients, I know now that we have a proven system to find your perfect match virtual assistant. And we're not your typical agency. We, the team, have extensive experience with all aspects of the hiring process. And we take pride in personally selecting top-notch virtual assistants who will meet your unique business requirements. Our vetting process is super unique, and we continue to optimize this process to make sure we are only finding the best of the best VAs. We also uh, do not charge ongoing fees or manage and mark up your VA's wage. So you can learn more about this at CEOvirtualstaffing.com. And right now we have capacity for 30 new clients. Uh, if you are number 31 or 32, that doesn't mean that you um, you can't join us. It just means you might have to wait a week or two. So go to CEOvirtualstaffing.com. Now let's get into the episode. Hey guys, it's Gary Vaynerchuk, and you're listening to the Front Row Entrepreneur Podcast with our girl, Jen. Our guest today is founder of Backlinko and the co-founder of Exploding Topics. He's been featured on hundreds of major media outlets, including Forbes, Inc., Entrepreneur, and Fast Company. Welcome to the show, Brian Dean. Thanks for having me, Jen. So I don't know how I found you a few months ago, but I am so glad that I did. Your content has rocked my world. Not only have I learned a ton about SEO from you, but I've also learned so much about copywriting and content creation in general. Your content is so, so good that I don't know if your ears were burning, but you were the feature of one of my group coaching sessions recently. I literally was like, Go to this website, backlinko.com, sign up for this guy's newsletter. His name is Brian Dean, and just strive for that. Like, we all need to be striving for this. Like, this is the kind of content we should all be putting out. And since finding you, that has been my goal to create content more like yours. So, before we jump into our chat about SEO, because there are like a million things I want to ask you, can you share with us? your process for creating those amazing blog posts. Like by process, I mean, do you start with a bunch of notes in Evernote? Do you walk around with an old-fashioned pen and paper? Do you use Google Dictation? Do you have a team? Do you batch create your content? Like your content is truly just cream of the crop. And I'm I'm so curious about your process. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. So, I mean, my process was me doing everything and my content was solid back then, but it's got a lot better now that I have a team helping me out. So in the beginning, I would do everything myself. I would you know, find the topic. I would outline it. I would write it. I would edit it. I would put it into WordPress. I would take the screenshots. I would do everything. And I still do the writing part and a lot of the research myself, but it's now more of like a team process. And the main things that in terms of how to get that wow factor on your content that, that's worked for me. Number one is that when I write a piece of content, I always try to document instead of creating. And this is something that I heard from Gary Vaynerchuk back in the day. And basically his philosophy for content is 
if you're doing stuff, you don't really need to create content from scratch because you're doing cool stuff. You just need to document what you're doing. So I usually don't delve into topics that I don't know about with firsthand experience. And this is a mistake I used to make back in the day. I remember when conversion rate optimization was the big thing in like 2015, mm-hmm. 2016. Everyone was split testing their button colors. I'm sure you remember this, Jen. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I need to get in that because that's the hot topic. So I started creating these blog posts and guides about conversion optimization, but they weren't very good because I didn't know anything about it. Like I had run a couple of split tests, but I was no expert. So I tried to apply the same sort of process to these topics that I didn't know about and the content didn't really do that well. So I think the foundation is really documenting what you're already doing and relying on people that have that firsthand experience, the in the trenches experience. And even if you mess everything up after that, your content's still going to have that certain cool factor, that wow factor that other content won't because it's written by people that have never done the thing that they're writing about. Wow. That's such an important distinction. The other thing I think that makes your content so good, I mean, there's so many things. And when we talk about copywriting and SEO in a little bit, this will all come up um, again. But one of the reasons I enjoy your content so much is that you you will talk about something, but then you will give very clear examples. And I think that's where I get lazy. You know, I'll whip out a blog post, but giving all the examples it's really time consuming. So is that a part of the process that you might outsource to one of your team members is like, if in this section, you need 10 screenshots of someone using a certain widget or something like that, then it would be a workflow for someone else to research? Yes, that's a perfect thing to outsource because you can come up with the vision and what the section should look like. But you know that research part, it's going to be super time consuming. You get down this rabbit hole and you're spending like 15 minutes looking for an example or 20 minutes and you're like, this is not really a great use of time. Someone else could have found it. So yeah, I have a team that helps me with those screenshots, especially and finding some examples. But I try my best to to use examples from my own business as much as possible. Mm -hmm. Not always possible. You know, if you're doing like a pricing page. I don't have a pricing page, so I need to find a good example. Or for a copywriting guide that I wrote recently, there are a lot of examples that I didn't have first in experience in, like SaaS, um, some other areas. So I kind of had to use examples from other industries. And Mm -hmm. that's very time consuming. And that's where a a team, a researcher uh, can come in and help with that. So yeah, I think that if if you want to level up your content, I think the first thing I would recommend is trying to document, don't create as much as possible. Include those examples from your own experience. People do want to hear that. And it helps your content be really, truly original because no one else has those examples. They're yours. And then also having a team help you with some of these steps that you pointed out, Jen, that are just super time consuming and don't really have to be you doing it. Yeah, I love that. And I think a lot of people are going to be very relieved to hear that, that it's okay like you don't have to know everything about everything. Talk about what you're already doing. Document what you're already doing. That sounds like freedom to me. Actually, <laughs> It you was know? to me too. When I heard Gary Vaynerchuk say that, I was like, of course, took a lot of pressure off. You know, I don't really I've, have to write about all this stuff. I just have to write about what I'm already doing and I'm already doing it. So I'm halfway there. But I will say though that your content, I mean, it's so deep you definitely could never be accused of being surface level. Um, So you go very deep on all of your, I mean, each of your posts could truly be published as a book. And I don't want that to intimidate anyone from looking at your content because it doesn't read like a book in that, you know, and and I'm sure you'll talk about about this in in a little while, but 
you do such a great job of breaking everything up in a way that is the content is not overwhelming, even though it's like really super like beefy and 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 there's a lot of it. It's very scannable and very easy on the eyes, short sentences and all of that. But I'm wondering if our listeners might be thinking, well, that's great, but I'm a coach. I'm a life coach. So like how deep could I possibly go and how many things could I possibly talk about before I really run out of things to say? It's it's a legitimate concern for sure. Um, I think what I would recommend doing if I was in that situation is go try to go an inch wide and a mile deep. So a lot of times we'll see a topic and we'll think, well, if I cover that topic in depth, then there's only like 10 of those. And then I'm, I kind of run out of ideas. So what I do sometimes is I go one, one subtopic under that topic and just drill down on that. So for example, let's say you're a life coach and you wanted to write about how to set up a morning routine. And you're like, okay, well, once I write that and I write the most in-depth morning routine guide ever, I'm going to be out of ideas. But you can always create blog posts around specific segments of a morning routine, like getting up, doing a morning meditation, a mindfulness, what to eat for breakfast, exercise, maybe do affirmations or something. Each of those could be a guide or a blog post on their own. And that's when you get really deep. Like it's one thing to do a guide about the morning routine, but if you write the most in-depth guide to setting up your morning affirmations as part of your morning routine, it's going to be way more in-depth. And if you have experience helping people with that, your content's also going to be really good. Oh, that's great advice. Great advice. Okay. So now let's dig into your SEO genius mind. And I'd love to know what are some important trends in SEO that we should be keeping our eye on right now? I would say the biggest one is user experience in terms of Google being able to measure user experience on your site. Now, before, uh, back in the day, you know, someone would search for something in Google, they would click on your site and it'd be kind of a black hole in terms of Google, right? They wouldn't know what they were doing on your site or how they're interacting with it. All they could really measure is if someone went back to the search results, that was to Google, not good, right? So if you're searching for, you know, the best coffee and you click on the first result and then you quickly click back, Google can measure that. And they're like, you know what? That's not really a good result because they didn't stay on the page and they're still mm-hmm. looking for what they're looking for. They, we haven't satisfied their search as they put it. So Google is actually going one level beyond that now. And when they crawl your page, they're looking at how good of a user experience that's going to be by measuring these things they call core web vitals. And basically what they are is it measures how fast your page loads and how quickly someone can click on something, interact with it, and whether the page moves around. Those are basically the three things. You can. I have a guide to Core Web Vitals on my site if you want to learn more. But essentially, if your site is you know optimized well for users, it loads quickly, the page doesn't move around as you load, and people can interact with it pretty uh, quickly as well, then you're going to pass these things. And you can always see your Core Web Vitals. Uh, you can go to Google PageSpeed Insights. They have a tool. Just put your site in there, and they'll show you exactly what's good, bad, or in between. But Google is just getting good at measuring these user experience signals and they're making them a bigger part of the algorithm, which just makes sense, right? They don't want to send people to sites that have a bad user experience. So I'd say that's the number one trend to keep an eye on. I do a daily Amazon flash briefing and I just report like the latest news in marketing and social media and that sort of thing. So I reported, I'm going to get this wrong, but there was some statistic that I reported that was 
recent research that shows that some ridiculous percentage of visitors to like Google searches to websites that produce like zero clicks, like people are Googling, they're going places, but they're not clicking, but it didn't really expound on that. And I'm wondering is, do you think, well, first of all, is that true? And number two, do you think it's because now when you Google something, they do that thing where they give you all the information that you need without having to click on it? Like you see the whole summary of the article? Because I use that all the time now. Like I'll say, you know, what is the best way to clean my ice machine? Okay. And then it'll pop up like four very clear steps. I don't even need to click on the website. It's it's already done that for me. Yeah, I, I did see that study, Jen. It was uh, by Rand Fishkin at Spark Toro. Um, who is uh, one of the people in the industry that I respect the most. So the data is 100% accurate. And it was I think it was 60% result in no click. Um, yes. Which at first, the headline, you're like, oh, no. Um, but if I, I read the study uh, in depth, including the a lot of the details, and there was a, a line in there that didn't get as much attention, which was even though you know, the clicks are down in terms of percentage, there are more searches now and there are more clicks than ever for publishers. So it's like the percentage has gone down, but there's more people searching and they're searching more often. So there's more opportunities to get clicks than ever before. So overall, it was actually good news, even though at <laughs> first it was a little bit scary with that number. Um, so yeah, if you, if you look at that study, there's a line in there that talked about just the gross number of clicks, the total amount of clicks, there's more. So it's, it's actually in the end, relatively good news, but it's definitely a concern that people in SEO have had for a long time that Google has, you know, they're, they have those things that you're, you're talked about, Jen, which are called featured snippets, which make it so you don't really have to visit the website. And is that really good for people that are creating content? Probably not. But on the other hand, the rising tide lifts all boats. And if that mm -hmm. feature makes you Google stuff more often, you're going to click stuff. So I think it's not like this zero sum game necessarily that we're going to miss out on all these clicks. So even though 60% of people aren't clicking, there are just more clicks in general. And I'd rather have that. So for me, I think that Google is definitely going to move towards giving you quicker answers and making it so you don't necessarily have to visit a website, but it's never going to just burn all the publishers and make it so they don't send you any traffic. Because if you look at where traffic comes from online, it's like, you know, 75% Google. It's not, there's not even a close second. So mm -hmm. it's still the number one traffic channel in terms of getting traffic. So even if it does go down a little bit, it's still just an awesome channel overall. Okay. Well, thank you for that clarification. And like, shame on me for not really diving in and doing my homework because I was clearly like reading the headline. Well, you weren't wrong because the number is accurate and it's it's a concerning trend. Let's put it that way. You know, I, I looked at the bright side part, but the, the downside is that if this continues, then we're going to be talking about fewer total clicks. You know what I mean? So right. I think your your concern was definitely justified. Okay. Well, thanks. All right. So what are a few SEO quick wins that we could implement as people who aren't really SEO experts? I think that number one, usually when I go, you know, if I back up my client days, the number one thing I would look at on a site is improving their existing content. So a lot of times sites have some content on their site that's pretty good, but it's right below that bar of where it needs to be to rank. So instead of creating new content or trying to build links or working on site speed or any of this stuff that's, that can take a long time to put into practice, 
updating a blog post can take like two hours max. So usually I would go through your own content and be like, how can I improve this? How can I expand this? And how can I update this? That's usually how I go through it. So the first is you're like, how can I just make this better? For example, you talked a little bit about the short sentences approach to writing online content. So can I shorten some of the sentences? Can I shorten some of the paragraphs? Can I add more visuals? Can I just make it easier to skim and find information? Then you want to, you can update it as well. Maybe this is out of date. Even if it's a topic that's not changing all the time, you know, like marketing or technology, there's still usually some innovation or change or something you can add and that can make the post better. And the last thing I'd look at, how can I make it more comprehensive? You know, maybe my post was the most comprehensive five years ago since I wrote it, but today, you know, it's leaves a lot to be desired. There's, it doesn't cover everything there needs to be. So maybe you could add a couple sections and beef it up a little bit. And if you do those things, those are usually some very easy, quick wins that can make a huge difference in your traffic. I'm wondering, so I'm always trying to systemize everything. So as you're talking, I'm thinking like, could I create a template for my team, like an inventory, right? To go to each of the blog posts and check for, you know, just an inventory of like, does it have this? Does it have a subheading? Does it have whatever? All the And then all the things that you just said. Um, and outsource that. I don't want to spend two hours on each of my blog posts. No, I, I know. I don't blame you at all. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's a, you could get to that granular level. It depends on how you want to do it. Um, there's two approaches. One is like you said, you could say, okay, here is sort of a checklist that the post needs to have. And if it has it good, if not, you need to fix it. So it has, if you know, checks all the boxes. The other approach is you can show someone an example and be like, it needs to be up to this standard. Mm. And I kind of prefer the, the latter approach just because it's hard to, you know, make content in that checklist style and say, okay, it's good because it could fit all the boxes technically, but maybe the content's not really up to date, or maybe it's not very comprehensive, or maybe it's just not very good or readable. It's the subjective part of it. So I prefer to just be like, you know, when you update it, make sure it has all these sort of factors as opposed to getting into that granular level. Although I don't think there's a right or wrong approach. I'm just saying from my experience, I prefer just to show the standard and be like, make sure everything on the site lives up to the standard. Okay. So then the next question for me is, so my team is, you know, basically general virtual assistants. They're not copywriters or editors. So could this be a position that, um, and I'm, you know, we have a lot of solopreneurs who are listening that, you know, either have a VA or are very, very small team. Could this be like a Upwork contractor that you hire on an as-needed basis? Or, I mean, I'm sure you have someone in-house all the time, but is this a copywriter, I guess, or can it be someone else? It could definitely be an Upwork project. If you're intimidated by this, it's not hard at all, what, what we're talking about. It's intimidating, yeah, if, like you said, Jen, if you're spending two hours a day, because then everyone's thinking, well, I don't have two hours to spend on this. So it's definitely something you can outsource. You don't need a professional copywriter or someone like that to do it. I don't think this is a great task for a VA necessarily, mm -hmm. uh, depending on their experience level, where they are, things like that. This is definitely, you'd want a, essentially a writer to do this. So someone who's a content writer, but instead of writing, they're improving your existing content. And usually it's very cheap compared to having them write something from scratch. So 
Yeah, I would set up something on Upwork. Um, if I had to do this, I have someone in-house, but if I had to do this on Upwork, I would basically set up a project that says, you know, we need someone to go through X number of blog posts and get them to this standard. And then obviously lay out what makes that the standard. It's the quality of the content. It's the readability. It's the subheadings. It's the screenshots. It's the visuals. The fact that it's up to date, the fact that it's comprehensive. And then hire them for a test project. Give them one blog post and give everyone the same blog post and see which one delivers the best result and then hire that person. That's how I've been hiring everyone on Upwork for everything. I always try to do that test project first and give them all the same project and see who turns out the best. That way, when you scale up to 50, 100, 500 blog posts, however you want, however many you want to update, you have something there, that, someone there that's proven that they can deliver as opposed to handing them 500 and kind of hoping for the best. I love that. And I teach this in, in a program that I have that shows people how to hire virtual assistants. We do something very similar. So you hire, you know, four or five people for a trial week and they all have the same workload and you can actually see very clearly who the right person or people are for that job. But I've never thought of doing that actually for an upward position like this. So it makes perfect sense. I love it. Okay. Now I want to talk about your absolutely amazing newsletter. I love everything about it. And, you know, a lot of people try to do newsletters and they're boring. They don't get good open rates. They end up like not being able to be consistent with it. And there's very few newsletters. And I'm sure a lot of people would say this. I mean, very few newsletters that people actually read because there's just very few, I think, that are really, really good. Um, But yours is one that I never miss. I don't even put it in the um, to read later folder. Like I always read it right there on the spot. So, what should people keep in mind if they want to grow a successful newsletter? So I would say then looking back, I've had experience with two newsletters at this point. I have the Backlinko newsletter and I have the Exploding Topics newsletter. And they're both totally different. Like the Backlinko newsletter, as you've seen, Jen, is a kind of here are things I've learned. Here's some content that I published. It's very much a personal one-to-one style newsletter. The Exploding Topics newsletter is more of a traditional weekly you know, with a template that goes out to everybody. And it doesn't talk about me or any of the people on my staff. It's just content. Mm -hmm. So looking at the common threads between them and what helps them get high open rates on both, one is the consistent format. So you want people to have what I call the shark tank effect with your newsletter, which is, if I'm sure you've seen that show, Jen, Mm -hmm. Shark Tank. Oh yeah, love it. Okay. So you love it. So I do too. So I think one of the reasons that show works so well is that it's the same format every single week. It's basically the same show every single week, but everything's different because the entrepreneurs are different. Sometimes the sharks are a little different. The deals are different. It has that perfect balance between, you know what you're going to get, but you don't know what you're going to get. So a mistake that a lot of people make with newsletters when they're first starting out is that they're all over the place with their format. And I think that's okay if you want to experiment at first, but you want to find a format that works and just stick with that and tweak it as you go. That way people are going to know what they're going to get. So if you're doing a newsletter about as a life coach, I would have five tips on a Friday to make your weekend awesome and make that your format, assuming it works and you're getting good responses from people and just make that your format. The five tips are going to be different every Friday but people are going to know what they're going to get and it's going to increase your open rate. If you send them random stuff every week or every couple of weeks, they're going to be much less likely to open. So I'd say the number one thing is finding that format as fast as you can and then just sticking with that. Well, speaking of format, this has been gnawing at me for like, I don't know, six years. 
when, you know, I remember hearing, maybe it was from Amy Porterfield, but I mean, she's not the only one who, who said it or is saying it, but that your emails, even your newsletters should look like they're just coming from a friend without like the branded headers and footers and all that. And so I have followed that for the most part. I've got one sort of small newsletter I do with my VIP community that is definitely got the branding on it and it's pretty and I like it. And sometimes I get emails from people or newsletters from people and they do have all the pretty banners and I kind of like it. And then it makes me think I should start doing that. But so where do you stand on this issue? Uh, I'm uh, it's, I hate this uh, answer, but it's, it's depends situation. <laughs> it, it depends <laughs> a little bit. And like I said, I have two newsletters that I'm running right now. One is a hundred percent plain text. Looks like it's from your mom. And that's the idea. The mm-hmm. other is the pretty graphics, the banners, all that stuff. And they both get, you know, really good open rate. So I don't think there's a one size fits all, but if I had to go with one, it would be the plain text. So I agree with Amy Porterfield with that. And I think for like, if you're a solopreneur who's building a personal brand, I would a hundred percent avoid the pretty stuff. If you want to have the connection with the community, I would go with the plain text. Now there are cases like a VIP where you where it makes sense to add more, especially if the, if the VIP are delivering the material in that email, then you mm-hmm. want it to look good because people are paying for that. Same thing with our pro product at Exploding Topics Pro. We don't send a plain text email. We send something that's very designed, like even more than the, the free newsletter. I mean, it's like super designed. So usually I would be anti that, but I think there are a lot of cases where it does make sense. So if you're trying to build a personal brand and just connect with your followers and build an audience, Go with the plain text. It's easier. People like it. It has better deliverability. There's almost no downside to it. But if people are paying for that content, then I think they do need a little bit of a presentation to kind of justify it and to help it stand out from your free stuff. Okay. Yeah. And when I think about like one of the things I really do love about your emails is they really do. They're short. They're sweet. uh, You get right to the point. You link usually to your blog post or your content. And um, those are my favorite, but yeah. Okay. Good advice because Gmail will also penalize you if they read too many images in, in your emails, right? Yes. You're more likely to go to the promotions tab a lot more. Like I've, I've studied this like a crazy mad scientist and there's only a couple things that get you in that promo tab that almost a hundred percent of the time. And it's having a lot of images. That's number one, because if you think about it, emails from friends, email from colleagues, they might have an image or two, but they usually don't. But a lot of promotional emails do, especially e-commerce. So they tend to, to hit the promotion. So I try to avoid images in my emails as much as I can. But if you have really good, like with Exploring Topics, our free newsletter, we have tons of images in them and they do go to primary, but that's after getting like an insane open rate for a long time. It was in promotions for a while. We sort of had to get out of that purgatory. Um, so yeah, I would recommend limiting images if you can too. And just I love using images, but it's it's a challenge too. You just have to kind of describe it with words. And that's what I do with the Backlinko newsletter. I usually don't include any images there for that exact reason. All right. Well, speaking of words, can you share some of your favorite copywriting tips? And I want to pause right here to remind our listeners that you have this incredible copywriting guide that you just published. It's at backlinko.com and you guys like grab it right away because it's like taking a fantastic copywriting course, but it's free and it's right at your fingertips and it's so, so good. So I feel like I am now a copywriting expert, but for every, (laughs) just kidding. But because of your blog post, I absolutely learned a lot. Can you share some of your favorite copywriting tips with us? 
Yeah. My number one that comes to mind for whatever reason is the beginning of your page or email or whatever. I feel like it's, this is a kind of an underrated part of copywriting is nailing that first sentence, that first paragraph, because if you don't really hit there, usually you're going to lose people. So what I used to do when I would write these long sales letters is I would spend equal time on the beginning as I would with like, you know, the middle. And I realized that like 90% of people would read the first part and like 25% would make it to the middle. So why was I spending so much time on that? So I said, the number one thing is to master the lead. And in most cases, for most of the content we're talking about here, which is kind of that instructional, helpful content, you just need to tell them kind of what they're going to see and then show them you're the right person for it. So I use a, a formula for my uh, introductions for most newsletters that are, you know, have content in them or for when I'm promoting a blog post. It's just that today you're going to learn X, you know, this is the same strategy, tip, case study, whatever that I use to get this result and a call to action. Here's how you read it. And I found the simpler I get with my intros, the better my engagement is, the better my click-through rate is, all that stuff, which just makes sense. You're just cutting to the heart of it, that you're kind of saying, answering what's in it for them right away. You're showing some social proof that you used it or a client used it or a customer used it to get a result. And then you know, a call to action that pushes them to actually check it out now. Um, because most content is going to be there forever unless it's an Instagram story. So no one's in a rush to check it out. So that call to action can help push them to actually read it um, when they see it for the first time. What about um, podcasts, like subject lines for my podcast? I always wrestle with this because sometimes I'll put in brackets like podcasts and then the title of it beside that. But then I'm like, if I get an email like that, I'm like, I don't have time to listen to a podcast and I just don't even open the email because I know it's a podcast. So I'm wondering, should I trick them a little bit? No, trick is not the right word. <laughs> should I entice people a little bit and just give like this really juicy title and then when they open it maybe talk a little bit about the podcast episode what we cover and then link to the podcast episode that's probably the thing to do right yeah i think that's probably best because like you said the podcast sometimes those parentheses things can really help you open rate but i think you're right in this case it could hurt it because people are going to think i don't have time to you know to listen to a podcast and especially because you don't have an opportunity to really sell the podcast and just your subject line they really do need to like open it see who the guest is learn more about what they're going to learn and they may be like you know what this sounds pretty good i'll check it out and as long as you mix it up sometimes you send an article sometimes you send a video sometimes you send a podcast it's not like you're pulling a bait and switch it's the same format of how you're getting people to open just inside it's different content every time Okay. And some of your other copywriting tips that really grabbed me and I, you know, and it's definitely a perfect example of how you write about the things that you actually practice because we could see it in your blog posts and in your emails and your newsletters is that the flow, what, what I think is amazing that you're able to pull off because of your copywriting is the flow of the words in that, well, you take out all the big words. So you, you replace big words with simple words, Right. Yep. Yeah. I'm not a big fan of big words. I think because I never, I never liked them in school. I can never remember them. So it comes natural to me. And every time I, and I always was kind of allergic to them. I just never liked, I remember I had to study for the GREs for graduate school. And I remember that was like half of it is just learning these big words that no one ever uses. And I really hated that part. So it's always stuck with me that every time I find myself using a big word, I always think, 
how can I not use the big word? I think it's, it's just good copywriting in general, Jen, but also you'd be surprised how many people from other countries are reading your content who speak English, mm. but maybe their English isn't, you know, a native speaker level. And if you can write it in simple English, you get the best of both worlds. It's easier for native English speakers to read and also for people that speak English as a second language. And in my business, you know, 25% of our customers are from overseas. That's a good chunk of people from Denmark and Spain and China, everywhere. And they speak English. Obviously, they're, they're reading my stuff and they're signing up for my courses. But for them, it just makes it a little bit easier. And it's not like the, the native English speakers don't like it. So it's really a win-win to simplify your writing as much as you can, especially, like you said, Jen, the words that you choose to use. Yeah. And the way that your emails are so short, because this also sometimes trips me up and um, I get comparisonitis or feel less than or like, okay, I got to really up my game. When I get emails from content creators that are really, really long, like the emails themselves are like, blog posts or journal entries or something. And they're sometimes they're quite good. You know, they're like really thoughtful and man, but that's so intimidating to me. I don't always have that much to say. And actually, if I do, I would rather it be in the form of a blog post, but there, there is this trend. I don't know if it's coming or going where people just write like tons and tons in their emails. What do you think about that? I think I sent I sent some of those too, um, those longer ones that are just self-contained. But I sent think that, or, or send like past tense or or present. No, no, still do, still do. Okay, All yeah, right. I think I think it's a good part of a, a newsletter mix if you're doing the personal style is to occasionally throw in the longer email. The key that I learned from doing this, uh, the learn the hard way, is I used to do it, and I would have five tips for SEO, and I'd have this massive email. And just something about it's like a square peg in a round hole. People don't want to read five tips in an email. In a blog post, they're happy to read 100 tips. In an email, they don't want five tips. They want one tip max. So what I've learned is if you want to experiment with that longer form newsletter content, just tell stories. Um, if you are sending stories that are like lessons, people are going to be very receptive to that. If you try to you know, create a guide or a list post inside an email, it's not really going to resonate. So in my experience, I've kind of ditched that whole trying to, you know, do five tips in an email. And instead, if I go long form, it's a story about how I tried something and it worked or it didn't work and what I learned from that experience. Okay. You just saved my life. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> I mean, because just the fact that you just said one tip, not five like that, you just solved so many problems for me. You have no idea. So thank you. All right. I've just enjoyed this conversation so much. I have learned so much from you. And uh, I have one more question for you. And that is, and it's going to kind of put you on the spot, but um, I'm going to do it anyway. What, <laughs> what is the best business book that you've ever read? It's a, it's a tie. Can, can I go with two? You absolutely may go. I'll go with uh, Ready, Fire, Aim and Zero to One. Okay. I don't know either of those. Do you know who wrote them? Um, zero to one's Peter Thiel. Ready, far, aim is Chase. Um, I'm drawing a blank on that. Well, that's all right. I'll Google it and I'll put, there, I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. There are two of my favorites. I've reread them a billion times. Okay. Why were they your favorites? Well, ready, far, aim, like the name kind of suggests is it's about starting before you're ready. And it's the only book that a business book that kind of takes you through the whole, like your business growth, like starting, 
kind of getting off the ground, scaling, and then going huge. And it's the only book that covers all that territory. Most book is most books are designed for one part of that process, like when you're just starting out or when you're looking to scale or blah, blah, blah. This takes you through the whole gamut and it's very tactical and includes tons of examples from this guy's experience. And zero to one, it's the complete opposite. It's not tactical at all. It's totally just a way to think about launching products and creating products in a way that they're totally original. And basically the idea is that you want to create your own monopoly as opposed to creating products that already exist and then creating like a better version. And that's his philosophy. He's the founder of PayPal and Palantir and a a very celebrated investor. So his philosophy is don't compete like competing is for losers. I think he says like create something totally original. The hard part is it's really hard to do. So when you read it, you got to reread it a couple times to really for it to sink in and to try to get your mindset to think in terms of creating products that are really different instead of just 10% different than what's out there. I love it. Do you listen to podcasts? Uh, some, yeah. I listen to uh, mostly sports podcasts. I'm a big NFL oh. fan. Oh, okay. So, well, you lost me there. You lost most of my ear time is uh, <laughs> spent uh, listening to the stuff about the NFL. Okay, fair enough. Well, <laughs> thank you so much, Brian, for joining us. You guys, if you want to check, please check out Brian's stuff at backlinko.com. And then his other thing is exploding topics. Is that your Peter Thiel like product? Are you going to have a monopoly <laughs> exactly. on that? I'm hoping, yeah. <laughs> Uh, it is very cool. I'll let you guys just go and play with it and you'll see what it's all about. It's very, very cool. And uh, yeah, so thank you so much, Brian. I really appreciate it. No worries. Thanks for having me, John. This episode is brought to you by the Front Row VIP, a private membership hub for entrepreneurs looking to grow their businesses with smart marketing strategies, productivity hacks, and solutions for systemizing. This high-value membership includes twice-monthly strategy calls, monthly content planners, special events, monthly guest experts, and a networking community of the smartest entrepreneurs on the planet. Get started today at frontrowvip.com.